Hello out there in Radio Land. Thanks for tuning in to Mountain Talk here at WMMT. I'm Rachel Geringer, and on today's show, we're celebrating Mother's Day. But this won't be a Hallmark card kind of show. And Anna Jarvis, the West Virginian who founded the holiday, would be glad of it. Jarvis first celebrated Mother's Day in Grafton, West Virginia in 1908, when she held a memorial for her own mother, an activist who'd cared for wounded soldiers on both sides of the American Civil War. Jarvis then went on to advocate for a national holiday honoring mothers, which Woodrow Wilson signed into official status in 1914. But by the early 1920s, Jarvis had grown frustrated already by the commercialization of the holiday, criticizing companies such as Hallmark, who used the day for profit, For the next hour, we're celebrating, remembering, and reckoning with mothers. Maybe you had the best mom in the world, or maybe the worst, or maybe, and most likely, your mom is a complex, contradictory, nuanced individual, deeply wonderful and deeply flawed, and only human, like the rest of us. Maybe you are a mom. Maybe you're about to be a mom for the first time. Maybe you were raised by two moms, Or maybe you were raised by two dads and didn't have a mom. Maybe your mom is alive and well. Maybe you don't talk to your mom. Maybe your mom has passed on. Holidays are complicated times for many people. And in this episode, Apple Shop staff share their gratitude and lessons, as well as stories of resilience and healing from their relationships with their mothers. Others share dreams and hopes about the types of mothers they aim to be. These aren't all happy stories, and one person in particular talks about childhood abuse, though not in great detail. But I wanted to let folks know that there will be rocky moments in the next hour. But there are moments of joy and kindness and growth, too. Moments of sadness. Moments of delight. And hopefully, somewhere in the midst of it, you see a reflection of what family really feels like. A growing, shifting, messy, wonderful, sometimes violent space. But one that shapes us nonetheless.
My name is Donna Porterfield, and uh, I grew up uh, in Berkeley County, West Virginia, and until I was in uh, fifth grade, and then we moved uh, to Northern Virginia uh, for work. And when we lived in Berkeley County, West Virginia, uh, we lived on a, a small farm. At that time, that area was all small farms. And so then moving to Northern Virginia, which to us was a huge city, was a big change. So in my growing up, I experienced uh, two very different uh, places. And um, who was your mom, and what was she like? My mother was uh, Catherine Louise Coyle, um, and um, she was born in 1923 in Berkeley County, West Virginia, uh, to Guy Wilder Coyle and Cora Glinda Coyle. <laughs> and she is, was the uh, oldest of five children. Um, they, uh, her father was a, a mill worker. He worked in the woolen mills, and her mother was a very hard uh, worker at home. She grew a big garden, took care of the hogs and the chickens, and um, kept, never lost a child. And my grandmother was also a uh, self-made nurse, and she had all her own children on the kitchen table, <laughs> which is where people had their children in that day. So uh, my mother was very much like her father, uh, he was happy and outgoing. Uh, he, as they say, never met a stranger and uh, just loved to be around people. And my mother was very much like that. Do you have um, do you have a favorite memory of your mom? Oh, I have so many. I think uh, one of them was uh, we didn't have a car, but most people didn't. My father used his father's truck, you know, to drive over to the farm. So, uh, but my mother's father had a car because he worked in the wool mills and he had to have one. So um, sometimes she would be able to borrow it and she would put us kids in the back of the car. It was an old Ford and she would put us kids back on the, in the back of the car and just um, say, okay, kids, let's see where this road goes. And then she would just drive and drive to some place that she'd never been before, and she just enjoyed that immensely. She had always wanted to travel. So after my brother and I were uh, were out of the house, uh, she used to buy, My father didn't like to travel, and he didn't mind if she did. I mean, he didn't think he had to go with her at all, and she loved it, and he didn't like it. So she bought this um, bus Ameripass that you could buy for $75, and you could go anywhere in the United States with this one pass for as long as you want and on the Greyhound. And so uh, she bought that pass, and she got on the Greyhound, and she just went. And she because she's an insomniac, uh, she would, like, uh, you know, rock everybody's uh, babies at night while they slept and play with the children. She loved children and babies, loved, loved, loved them. And um, uh, she just really, I like to think of her doing that because she was just having such a wonderful, uh, wonderful time. And uh, uh, the other the other thing about her, which, of course, when I was in a teenager, I was just humiliated and embarrassed by, is that she was so open intuitively, and uh, she was not a 
she was not a thinker. She was a feeler. <laughs> you know, she didn't intellectualize things. And uh, she was very, very open. She just had an open soul to human beings, uh, any human beings. And uh, constantly, you know, she everywhere she went, people she knew or didn't know, I mean, frequently that, that she didn't know them at all, would come up to her and she would say, say oh, hello, and... Um, then they would tell her some very, very horrible thing they were going through or some sad experience, and she would cry. She was a very, she was an easy crier. She cried very easily. And she would cry with them and and hug them, and then they would go on their way. And I think when I was a teenager, we were in the grocery store. This would happen, of course, in the produce section, and I would just stand away and watch and then when she came, I'd say, well, who was that, Mom? Is that someone you know? And she'd say, oh, no, I don't know them. And she, uh, but, and then she would tell me their story. Then when she moved here, she moved here to Norton, where I live and have lived for 40 years. She moved here to be close to me when she turned 80. And she spent her last years with me. And... um the same thing happened here, I saw, and it would be people that I had known here, you know, for a long time, and I had no idea uh, that they had gone through the story that they told her. So it's something that uh, I didn't, I did not inherit from her. <laughs> people don't do that with me, <laughs> um, although I have very friendly relationships with people and easy relationships. But I just think uh, her father was that way as well, and it's kind of a very uh, special thing. And I think she was just so full of love that was unconditional uh, for uh, everybody. That didn't mean she 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 felt perfectly free to tell you what she thought if you were doing something she didn't like. Believe me, but. Um, and uh, in no uncertain terms, and she was a big cusser too, so <laughs> you could get that. <laughs> but she was just, uh, she was like her dad. She was unique in that way, and I, I always have felt uh, very fortunate to have her for a mother. And if this was Father's Day, I could tell you all kinds of wonderful stories about him as well, because he was also a very wonderful person. But, and I think also to be loved unconditionally um, by your parents. Is a, is a gift that is be beyond any other gift you could have, and um, it's a hard thing uh, to do. And uh, I was loved unconditionally, not only by my parents, but by my extended family on both sides. And uh, that's just uh, that's just something I lucked into by the accident of birth, and it's. Uh, it's a blessing, that's all I can say, that I didn't do anything to deserve, but I got by the luck of the draw. Next up, we'll hear from Lily and her mom, Sarah. I know that I said in the intro that this piece features Apple Shop staff, but that isn't entirely true in this case. Even so, both Sarah and Lily are very much part of the Apple Shop family. My name is Sarah Eastep, and I am 28 years old. I'm Lily... And I'm eight years old. I'm just saying, but if you had a twin little girl, which would be your favorite? You. Okay, because that, that girl would be 
real. <laughs> unless your unless your hypothetical twin gives me foot massages every night, in which case then she's my favorite. Um, no, she would pick your pick her burgers in front of you. <laughs> pick her burgers in front of me. <laughs> what were you thinking the first time you saw me? Um, well, I was thinking that I was uh, glad that you were born and that labor was over. And I just thought that you just looked so, so perfect and so cute. And I just thought <laughs> we'd had a really rough day. I can remember thinking that, like, being born must have been so rough on you. Cricket. 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 What do you want to be when you grow up? I think I actually might be a doctor for kids that are, like, sick. No surgery. I hate surgery. Okay. I've never had it done, but I know I do not like blood. So you want to be a doctor who doesn't perform surgery? I don't know, but I just want to do, like, little kids and help them when they're sick or, like, really bad sick. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Sort of. Now you ask your juicy question. Mom, what's your favorite bird? Oh, my favorite bird? Do I get to pick any bird in the world? Yeah. That's really hard. Uh, mine is, of course, a chicken... Yeah, yep, yeah, chicken. <laughs> My favorite dog is a chihuahua. <laughs> um, dog and bird, got it, including chickens. I kind of really like ostriches. Are you cuckoo? No, you are cuckoo. Sorry, you are officially. They're like cuckoo. living dinosaurs. What? Yeah. Oh, that thing just so are chickens, out. really, though. <laughs> They're living dinosaurs. Yeah. Welcome to the human. I forgot. <laughs> How has being a parent changed you? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> wow! That was a great answer. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, uh, I feel like the biggest change is that your priorities change in that you don't get as hung up on stuff that doesn't matter oh, yeah. as I used to. I did, I stopped getting as worried about other people's problems and started trying to focus on what was right in front of me. And that's kind of been something I have benefited from ever since you were born. Yeah. Uh, my name's Amy Brooks, and uh, I am the program director and dramaturg for Roadside Theater. Uh, which is Apple Shop's theater wing. And I've been there for two years. And I grew up in Morgantown, West Virginia, with uh, two parents. My father is fifth-generation West Virginian. Uh, his people are from Upshur County. And my mom is Jewish, and her family is from Manhattan. So it was very interesting in my house growing up. I bet. I bet. Yeah. Sort of a combination of worlds. It happening. explains a lot about me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. So... We're putting together this mountain talk about Mother's Day. And for some people, that's a really, like, cheerful and rosy and nostalgic topic. And for others, it's a lot more complicated, right? And our relationships <laughs> with our moms are not necessarily um, memory book material in the same way. So 
I'm wondering um, why Mother's Day feels kind of difficult and complicated for you. Uh, I guess the answer is just because my mom is a difficult and complicated mother. <laughs> uh, it's not it's not a rosy day for me. In fact, I got um, this notification that you were looking for these stories the day after I decided that I would go and visit my mother for the first time in... I haven't seen her for the past four or five Mother's Days, I think. I only see her about once a year maximum. And I go up to Cincinnati where she is in a nursing home uh, under my brother's guardianship. But I, I deliberately um, don't have a lot of contact with my mother. That was a choice that I made in about 2014. So Mother's Day is, yeah, it's, it's really fraught for me. I feel guilty. I feel um, proud of myself for making a choice that I think that I needed to make to keep myself safe and my dad's safe too. He lives near me and they like we kind of physically separated them at the same time also for his safety. So it is a very complicated uh, holiday in my family. And also May 10th is their wedding anniversary. <laughs> wow. So yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a loaded month in my family. Yeah. Did you make the decision to go see her on Mother's Day this year? Uh, yeah, that was part of the reason I, I, you know, I owed my brother and his family a visit too, and I wanted to see them. And, and they said, well, we're going to go visit mom because it's Mother's Day. Are you okay with that? And uh, I thought about it for a minute and I said, yeah, you know, I am. I think I feel like it's time to try. Um, my mom is, uh, she's a recovered addict. She, for many years, was addicted to uh, painkillers. I know that she was addicted to speed for a while. In fact, she was so secretive about it and um, so sort of uh, threatened our family and had all the money in the control and she concealed what she was taking. So to this day, no one really knows what all she was on. Uh, she was also very mentally ill uh, in a very violent way. So she is someone who uh, you know, should be very abusive mentally and physically. And I'm an adult now, you know, I'm 41 years old, and I can talk about this. For a long time, I couldn't. Uh, for a long time, I didn't talk about what was going on in our family. My dad didn't talk about it. Um, but to anyone who would see our family, uh, it was pretty obvious that there was something going on with her, that she was in a rage a lot of the time, that she could lash out and become very violent. And so for holidays like Mother's Day, you know, anyone who lives in a, a family that's dysfunctional at all knows that holidays are some of the most dangerous times when things are like keyed really, really tightly and um, people's nerves are kind of frayed and um, conflict tends to pop up and smack you in the face, sometimes literally <laughs> in our family. So uh, it, I had to really think about whether I was ready to kind of go back there. But um, I feel like that's one of the nice things about growing up is if if you work hard at it, you can recover a little bit from those things that happened. Um, make some choices that protect you and at the same time start at least taking steps towards forgiveness um mm. i i'm i don't know i don't always like the politics of forgiveness sometimes i feel like that pressure that um people who have survived abusive relationships they're told oh you have to forgive or you know you'll you'll never be able to move forward and i feel like that's kind of like emotional blackmail <laughs> so i want to tell people who come from like if if your mother has not been kind to you or has really hurt you i mean in an abusive way you don't have to forgive anyone you don't want to forgive and i know there's a lot of pressure on mother's day to <laughs> to feel like you're being disloyal or something but um you i feel like those of us who've been through this have to make 
our own choices about how we relate to our family. I'm at that point where I can go up and see my mother again on Mother's Day, but it took a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's a complicated holiday because there's this idea, right, around Mother's Day that it's this time to celebrate um, this sort of like mythical, romanticized notion of a mother and all the things that that's supposed to mean. And so if you don't have that in your life, whether because your mother was was not that and was mm-hmm. abusive and violent or whether because you don't have a family structure that looks like that yeah. or any number of reasons, like I think you're really right that it makes it, it feels like it's your fault kind of like there's something around these holidays that if you're not celebrating some like perfect family dynamic that you've somehow failed. So I like I like how you're thinking around that, that like that there's an important choice to be made for people who are survivors of of childhood abuse or or like have been disowned for being queer, right? Or have been any number of like really complicated dynamics with their parents that like there's some there's something really important about having like choice and control. Yeah. Control is a good word that I would choose. Control over your own boundaries. Uh, And a holiday like Mom's Day can feel like a violation of your boundaries if that's not a safe relationship for you. Uh, I think a lot of us have a holiday that sort of (laughs) sends us into a headspace that's maybe not so comfortable. If you are sensitive about not being in a romantic relationship, maybe it's Valentine's Day. Or if you're lonely, don't have anything to spend it with, Christmas can be difficult. And for some of us, yeah, Mother's Day is, is not a great time. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything you would want to say to like other folks who have complicated feelings on this holiday or other also are there just things that we missed that you'd want to Well, I can only speak for myself. I have hopes that I can continue moving towards a place where I can. I don't feel like everyone's obligated to, but I do want to try to forgive my mom and know that she did the best she could under really hard circumstances, that she's a human being and she's also a really smart hilarious, <laughs> passionate, uh, brilliant person who did the best she could for a long time. So uh, the reason I said yes to talking about this publicly was uh, I just want to I want to try to have some grace in the relationship and say, yeah, this one's for you, mom. Uh, our relationship, maybe it's not OK. Maybe it never will be OK. But I want to be OK with that. And if you out there listening are the kind of people who are trying to make that kind of peace with your own families. I guess I just want to say my heart is with you. You're my people. <laughs> uh, and uh, whether my blood relationships are perfect or not, uh, my friendships with other people who have been through the same thing feel like family to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Next, we'll hear Dudley Cock, Artistic Director of Roadside Theater. Several weeks ago, I spoke at my Washington and Lee University 50th class reunion. As part of the preparation for that speaking event, I was asked to summarize in a thousand words my life since graduation, emphasizing, of course, the impact the university had on me. This is my response. Throughout her 80s, my mother and I had a running debate about human nature. She became convinced that two of our big problems were the male ego and, second, that too often people did the right thing for the wrong reason. When she announced her first finding, 
I suggested the male ego would be a great name for a bar. She barely laughed. So I drew a picture on my cocktail napkin in large letters, B-A-R, and under it in small letters, the male ego. Better, she said. She had raised five boys, and best she could, a husband. Whenever I was able to visit during those years, our routine was to agree on a topic and then examine it with personal stories. Washington and Lee was one of our topics. I don't understand why you went there, she said, since you were always complaining about its politics. After Medgar Evers was assassinated in 1963, I'd just turned 17, I made a commitment to the Southern Civil Rights Movement. You could have gone to UVA or Chapel Hill, where there certainly would have been more support for your beliefs and, incidentally, something that would have helped you immensely, women peers. It took me a few visits to answer her question why I had, had chosen Washington and Lee when I realized I had been attracted to WNL's beauty, itself a product of its privilege. So on the one hand, you judged it for moral weakness, and on the other hand, wrapped yourself in its beauty? I'm not sure what this says about your character. Accused, I could only reply by describing sitting in Lee Chapel, its intimacy and sensuousness, listening to the alumni rebel Tom Wolfe read from the candy-colored tangerine flake streamlined baby of walking out one spring night with Jim Dickey declaiming at full force, of returning to the chapel in the winter of 1972 to witness W.H. Auden in his house slippers, giving one of his last public readings in his adopted U.S. homeland. After graduation, I joined VISTA and ran a school at State Mental Hospital in rural Oklahoma, went to graduate school at Harvard, and was preparing to go to prison for an indefinite period of time when my 11th hour appeal resulted in conscientious objector status to the Vietnam War. My decade of political activism, which took me hitchhiking back and forth across the country, provided lots to think about. Who stops to give you a ride on a cold night? How most people believe what they want to believe, and how the majority of us believe what suits our case. With problems like these rattling around in my head, I decided it best to throw in with the arts and humanities, mostly directing scripting and producing plays and publishing essays about the politics and power of culture. Since 1975, the base of my work has been in central Appalachia, and the plays have toured across the country to big cities and rural volunteer fire halls alike. As my mother slipped into her 90s, our sessions began to wind down, but we had roughed out plenty of dilemmas to dramatize. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT, broadcasting from the Apple Shop 
in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Today, we're celebrating, remembering, imagining, and reckoning with mothers. Apple Shop staff joined me in the studio to share stories about their mothers, some sweet, some not so sweet, and to imagine the kinds of mothers they hope to be. Really? Why do we have to make this more difficult? You think he'll sit on the couch? No, he wants to be next to you. Yeah. Okay. You ready? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) As ready as I'm going to be. I'm Willa Johnson. I live here in Letcher County and work here at Apple Shop. Um, I teach youth media. So, um, (laughs) big breath as I'm uh, doing two things at once. Um... I teach youth media, so I work with a group of young, uh, mostly women, um, who are creating media around birth control and access to reproductive health care and telling the story of what that means here in the mountains. Great. And um, am also a foster mom. Awesome. So, um, when did you first decide that you wanted to become a foster mom? Um, (laughs) sorry, I'm gonna, here we go. Um, so it was, I had just turned 30 and, um, I'd always been interested in adoption, but had never really considered it seriously because, um, there's a lot of agencies that won't let you adopt if you're a single parent. Um, and <laughs> which was like the problem, right? Like I wasn't having children biologically cause I hadn't found the partner I wanted to have them with. Um, I wasn't adopting children cause I didn't have the partner I wanted to adopt them with. And, um, I just turned 30 and was decorating my house for Christmas and, um, was in the middle of putting up a Christmas tree and, um, I get really nerdy around Christmas time. And so I had Christmas music playing and a fire, a little electric fireplace going and it just felt so cozy. And I just had this moment of like, I really wish I had a family to share it with. And, um, I go to church and I'm really religious and I just had this like, moment where I, people always talk about feeling like God talks to them and I'd never really really felt that but it just like I'd never considered foster care but it was just like in that moment foster care just came to me and I really feel like it was God talking to me um and uh so I started to look it up online and you could adopt as a single foster parent and um there were just a lot of different things that were like I could do this as a single person I have the home I have a good job. Um, I have all these things that I I would need um, to foster. Um, And so I contacted, well, first I I, I emailed my mom that night and was like, she's going to be like, absolutely not. You don't know how hard parenting is. Um, So I contacted her and said, um, I sent her a message and said, I'm considering foster care. And she wrote back and said, I think that's wonderful. And so, um, I contacted a few social workers that I'm friends with. And by the end of the week, I was enrolled in classes. Wow. Yeah. It was really quick. That's amazing. What do you think has surprised you most about being a mom? Um, (laughs) it's not at all what you expect. 
Um, I actually just had this moment a few nights ago. I was holding him and rocking him and just thinking um, the way I envisioned parenthood versus the way parenthood actually is. Um, not to say it, it it's better, but it's more real. <laughs> like you just, I think when you, when you dream of being a mother and you dream of motherhood, it's like you picture all those really sweet moments of like a really, you know, snuggly baby curled up in your arms and they smell good and, um, they're just so sweet and they smile and, and the reality is you get that and <laughs> sometimes you get the baby who, or, you know, the baby's like fussy or cranky or, um, Sometimes they don't smell so sweet. <laughs> um, so you just get like, it's a, very, it's a very real, it's just, it's different when you live it versus when you dream it, as are most things. But unlike most things, I think sometimes the dream surpasses the reality. And I would say like, even those really hard, frustrating moments of trying to do like a radio interview with the toddler in your arms. <laughs> with a toddler who's trying to reach for the mic and you're trying to keep him from the mic so it doesn't make noise. <laughs> Even those moments can be really stressful, but also like really great. And, and so the rea this is one of the only things where I think the reality you wouldn't trade for the dream. What do you, what do you wish people understood about foster moms? Um, I think sometimes, sometimes you want to just be like, we're normal moms. Like it's, it's motherhood, like everything else, because sometimes people will sort of treat you like you're a babysitter versus a mother. Um, and that gets really frustrating. But then I also think it's motherhood plus because everything is more layered. Everything feels more complicated at times. Not to say like everyday motherhood doesn't, but there is this just extra layer. Like I'm a single mom by choice. And so sometimes people will be like, you really need to take time for yourself. And when I always feel guilty or like, I feel like it's just too negative to say sometimes, but it's hard to take time for yourself when your your everyday life with your child feels really fragile. And so you're like, what if I take that two hours for myself and I don't have that two hours a week from now with him? Um, you know, like you're just always afraid of like, what if, what if I don't have tomorrow with him? And so it gets harder to be like, I do need to take some time for myself. I do need to recharge or I do need to rest because you're always like, just feel like you should never take a minute for granted with that child. Um, so that's one thing that, and, and just like, um, little milestones or Christmases or things like that feel extra layered because there's just this like bitter sweetness to them where it's just like any other holiday, but you do carry that. What if this is the last holiday feeling, um, or having to explain certain things to doctors or, um, daycare providers or just you know you always feel like this extra layer of like there's just like a, a little layer of sadness to it um but it's also like I don't know it's it's the way I always explain it is people will always say like how can you foster or I can I can never foster this is like the big thing here I can never foster because I would get too attached like every other foster parent doesn't feel really attached. But the way I always try to explain it is that that's exactly what they need. Um, they need someone who's attached to them. They need someone whose heart would break for them. Like they, they need these things because if children don't learn these things at birth, at, at child, at a child's age, then they don't grow into adults who learn how to attach and care for others. And so even if your heart is on the line, like 
you're breaking a cycle down the road of creating more adults who don't know how to attach and care for others. Um, what's the hardest thing about being a mom? Um, asking for help. <laughs> you carry, I think, I think moms carry so much. Um, not to say like there aren't dads who carry a lot too, or parents who carry a lot, but, um, I, I don't know. You want to be able to do it all and you want to be able to do it all well. <laughs> and, um, and I think we live in a time, especially for women where we think we have to do it all. And, um, I think it's hard to stop and ask for help or to give yourself a break when you need it. Um, because in terms of like my time with him, I don't really find anything <laughs> that hard. Like, you know, I was laughing yesterday that <laughs> I was laughing. Okay. Yeah. Um, I saw a meme this week that said, um, no one ever told me motherhood was willingly catching someone else's vomit in your hands. <laughs> and I was like, God, that is so true. <laughs> and like, you don't even mind doing it. Like, it's such a weird, like, it's such a weird reaction um, that you can't explain. Um, but like the stuff with him is never hard. The stuff about taking care of yourself or, or asking for help when you need it or trusting others to help you when you need it. That's hard. Um, I think that's the hardest part. And I think it's why sometimes moms can get a bad rep because they're tired and they don't feel like they have the support they always need um, and they don't know how to ask for it. <laughs> What's the most wonderful part about being a mom? Um, there's lots of wonderful parts. There's lots of stages that are wonderful parts when they're newborn. It's lots of snuggling and holding. Um, when they're learning to sit up, it's lots of like giggling as a roly poly baby is like all over the place. Right now, our favorite, my favorite part is, um, he's learning to hug and kiss. And so the little hand wraps around your neck and just holds you really tight. That's my favorite part right now. Those hugs are the sweetest hugs because they're just like the tightest little bear hugs you could ever imagine. Um, so, yeah, I think I think every new phase brings a new favorite part for me. Yeah, I would just add um, that I think one thing that's really valuable for moms is, you know, I was talking about how it's hard to ask for support. But I think one thing that's really valuable is having good communities. Um, and I think one thing we've been really lucky in is like having a good church community, having a good friend community, having a good work community. Um, and I think like, even though sometimes I don't feel like I ask for the support I need enough, I get, I do get support because I'm part of these really large, good, strong communities. And so I think, um, especially in East Kentucky, that's one thing we have to our advantage is that we have good sense of community, um. And so I think that's one thing that we really um, should value. You know, uh, uh, they always say the cliche, it takes a village for a reason. Um, <laughs> for example. Because right now my village is working for us. <laughs> right now your village is quickly chasing the child around the studio as he throws 
Things onto the floor. (laughs) I saw that coming with those shelves. (laughs) Yeah, my name is Alex Gibson. I work at Apple Shop, and I live in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Um, And so where did you grow up? In Jackson County, Kentucky. Tobacco farm. So what was growing up there like? (laughs) (laughs) Uh... It, it it makes me think of um, that I need to come up with a, a simile. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I think it was uh, isolating and communal at the same time. Um, there were a lot. There were not many black folks there. Uh, none, in fact. And so that was an isolating experience. And uh, yet there's some type of communal Appalachian nature that um, uh, both embraces and shuns uh, in equal measure. So it was kind of a poetic. It's it's kind of like um, living in the belly of a whale. Maybe, maybe Jonah could identify with Jackson County. It's an interesting um, place. Hard to explain quickly. <laughs> Doesn't have to be quick. What, um, can you say more about how Jonah could maybe identify with the experience. Uh, like why why that comparison? I think in some ways living in Jackson County was like being swallowed by big fish. Places are bigger than people. Um, people are parts of a place. Uh, and it's that movement between um, place and people where social change or democracy or uh, community radio, um, you know, so, so what I mean to say is that you can be, you can be in a place and the place can sort of move regardless of, of, of your intent, uh, even though it's just people, um, and you, and you sort of ride it and, and in some ways you're subject to it, um, like food is subject to the stomach of the creature that ate it, but, Yet you're alive, and there's some agency. There's some activity. There's the capacity to rip the jaws open and swim free. Um, and sometimes you choose to ride, and sometimes you make calculated errors, so or calculated uh, submissions to the direction that it's going. So I, 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 I describe it in that way, I think, because um, uh, Jackson County can feel oppressive. It can feel... Um, as though you're subject to, you know, the the, the culture there, uh, which can be uh, very positive and very negative. There are really good aspects of living there. Um, and then there are some that are really destructive. I saw a lot of people um, with substance abuse uh, in my family and then in my classmates and their families. Uh, depression, uh, anxiety, early pregnancy, and... Um, frequent divorce, you know, so you you see kind of these negative aspects that also get reported. And in that way, a lot of folks growing up in the area, in that particular town, feel trapped, you know. They feel like Jonah, in a way. Um, That you're just sort of riding in the the belly of something bigger than you. Um, And then similar to Jonah, you dream of escaping one day. And and, and how do how does one escape? Well, um, 
I, I wrote a, I wrote a play when I was a kid uh, analogizing um, coal mining. There was a coal mining disaster in West Virginia where 13 miners were killed, and one of them made it out. <clears throat> and it made me think about the inner city in my life in Cincinnati. And you know, how do you get out of a of a collapsed mine? Um, is it the kindest miner? Is it was it the best father? Was it the most religious who escaped? Didn't seem like any of those things were why the one person survived and the thirteen others died. Um, the air around you killed you, uh, and some people made it out, and it wasn't quite clear how or why. Um, so a lot of my family was you know stuck in inner city Cincinnati, in uh, crime and drugs, and then a lot of my family felt stuck in Jackson County. So uh, I've had this kind of feeling before in this uh, comparison of a coal mine or a collapsed coal mine and inner city life, and it's similar to Jackson County. Uh, people are not quite sure uh, if they have to escape, if escape's the right word to use, and then if, if it is, how to do that. Um, and sometimes when you make it out, you feel like you finally pried open the jaws of the whale um, or the big fish. What was your relationship with your mom like? It was a it was a it was a very uh, liberal relationship. <laughs> uh, she parented by story or consequence. I remember as a young boy, I didn't want to shower. <laughs> I didn't want to bathe in any way. Um, I thought it was bad. Uh, hated getting wet and all that, and I remember one day, you know, because I would I would skip and lie, and I would do I would do tricks to make it seem like I'd showered that took more time than showering. Like what? Like wetting my hair and stuff like that, but then coming back out, um, or just putting soap like putting soap on my cheek, uh, and then walking out with like suds and acting like I forgot to get that part um, <laughs> with a towel or whatever. So I remember one day she said, "Okay, Alex." Um, uh, how about we compromise and you shower once a week? And I thought, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. And she was like, okay, let's do that. And she said, but, you know, you're going to smell really bad at school, so uh, let's go out and find a really strong cologne you can wear that you can put on, on your clothes and in your shoes so that people won't smell you as easily. And then she was like, also... Since you ride the bus, you know, you're going to be walking by a bunch of people and they're going to smell you. So you should have, you know, this strategy of walking down the aisle. And she would, you know, and and, and as she continued to talk, I got more and more horrified. Um, <laughs> needless to say, I was showering when I was supposed to shower after the conversation. Um, <laughs> but it was that type of parenting. It was the type of, um, well, yeah, you can go out with your friends um, and drink alcohol but this is what's going to happen, and this is what. And for whatever reason, I just didn't do those things. Um, you know, I didn't uh, take drugs as a kid, and I didn't drink as a kid, um, and I did, and I showered. Uh, <laughs> but different people are raised different ways. And my brother, for example, uh, tested all those limits. You know, he would he, he would shower, but he would also, you know, stay out late um, and deal with the consequence. So, you know, it was interesting. Very liberal. Uh, 
a big influence on the way we would think and argue. Um, and if we had a better argument, then uh, we could uh, stay up late or watch the horror movie. One of the first books my mother read to me was uh, Tale of Two Cities and then Moby Dick. And so there was a really kind of influence on being smart um, and uh, thinking through issues. Do you have do you have a favorite memory of her? Uh, I have, yeah, I mean, I have no, not one specific. I have favorite things. You know, I, re I remember being very poor. You know, at, at some point I uh, was, um, I think I was maybe 10 or something, maybe 9. Um, she got out of her uh, Lincoln Town Car and it slipped into, sorry, into reverse. And she had pulled all the way into the gas station pulling the, wheel of the car as far to the left as it would go to pull into the parking spot. And so when it went into reverse, it, it started a circular motion. Um, well, she tried to get in the car to stop it, and the door knocked her down and then ran over her, and it then proceeded to run over her five more times in growing um, circles, uh, just going around the parking lot in circles, running over her with this ton-and-a-half uh, Lincoln uh, town car. Um, so we we she was disabled from that point in the future, um, and so I would have to give her shots and um, change her. She was a nurse, and and we lived with our older brother, with my older brother, eleven years older, and so she was able to convince them she didn't need to go to uh, permanent care that her sons and my and her father could take care of her. Uh, well, my older brother was uh, schizophrenic. Um, and so couldn't really take care of anybody. So it meant that I was taking care of her. So, you know, uh, changing her catheter and putting in struts and giving her shots when I was 10 or something years old. Um, and she could educate me on how to do these things. But it's interesting to think back and uh, when people talk about not having a childhood. <laughs> uh, so... Um, after that point, we were on Social Security, food stamps, everything like that forever. And um, at the same time, you know, uh, I was <clears throat> I was one of the kids that had a PlayStation uh, when it came out. Um, we didn't have much, but every Christmas and Thanksgiving, we had a feast. Every other day of the year, you know, we were eating... Um, souse meat or cornbread and buttermilk um, or like I said we had a farm so we had the stuff that we farmed and we had uh, deer and squirrel and pigs uh, that we could slaughter uh, we sold most of that but some of it we could keep um, but every every uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas there'd be a feast uh, and I remember there was a there's a <clears throat> it, it always choked. It always choked me up because it's so much. It's so similar. But there was a, a Tupac song, "Dear Dear Mama," and he says, "You were working with the scraps you were given. Mama made miracles every Thanksgiving," and that's what I always. That's all. That's what I remember the most is just how we had no money, but uh, we always had food. And whenever I needed that fifteen dollars for a field trip to the Speed Museum, uh, we got it. Are there things that you're most grateful for that you learned from your mom? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of my friends were raised in families where they were told to follow the rules because someone said so. And the way that she raised me, um, I'm not interested in that. Um, I'm not interested when I have my own kids in praising the ones that follow the rules the best. Um, it's not a it's not a value for me anymore. Uh, uh, perhaps it's even a negative. <laughs> um, so I think her thoughts on authority, her intelligence, uh, reason, logic, um, the submission to those things uh, as not threatening of a good life or of a rich uh, life, but as necessary for it, um, and that the rest could be a distraction, uh, an, an, an opioid, just to keep the metaphor alive, um, but that engaging with the world in this kind of active way on your terms, that reality bends to your mind and not the other way around, you know, you make it a, a pleasant day, um, or you make it a bad day. The day is the day. Um, I think, I think understanding the world in those terms um, from a very early age was a benefit. Um, she was just very smart, uh, and so was my brother. And it was, just, it was a good, it was a, I couldn't think of a, of a better way um, that I needed to grow up in Jackson County under that pressure, under that conflict, than to have a philosopher king as your mother. It was an interesting, uh, interesting way to grow up. That's a Plato reference, incidentally. It's not, I know she's not a king, but Plato talked of a perfect society being one in which these kind of philosopher kings would reign. And it was interesting uh, because the, a lot of the way he describes that society would be the way that my house was governed, you know. So my name is Kate, and I work at Apple Shop as the director of the Appalachian Media Institute. Right now I'm on an extended maternity leave, getting ready um, to have a baby probably on May 28th. But given my mom's history of childbirth, I think I'll probably go over <laughs> past 40 weeks, so we'll see that coming soon. Um, I'm from Richmond, Virginia, and that's where I am right now, and have been living for the last two years on Little Cowan in Whitesburg. What about and when you think about becoming a parent, right, because this will be your first child, um, what yeah. about parenthood is most exciting to you? I think just when when you first talked about doing this. I kind of made a list of the hopes I would have for him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you want to share those? What are your hopes for him? <laughs> I, I wrote them all down. So um, first one was just that he's healthy and that he has a gentle entrance into the world. That it's, I don't know if we kind of in any way carry with us how we enter the world in our minds, but I just hope for him that it's a gentle one. And for me, too. That would be cool, but mostly for him. Um, I was also thinking, uh, you know, my cousin randomly came by this morning who I haven't seen very often since she, she I remember when she was born. 
and we were kind of talking about how our parents' generation, they haven't stayed as connected with each other as as they could. And so I was just thinking, like, the importance of being connected to a community or a family, however your community looks, of support, so that, you know, even when Robert and I fail, as we inevitably will as parents in some way, that there are other people that he feels really rooted with um, always or if we're not here. And uh, most importantly is uh, getting rid of my judgmental nature and finding understanding and acceptance um, and to recognize that Robert and I are going to have to grow a lot um, as much as he's going to have to grow too. So being prepared for that and not being so like solidified in our ways. Um, Also just wanting him to inherit kind of a healthy world and an environment feels kind of tumultuous right now. <laughs> so just hoping that things kind of like start to work themselves out for <laughs> what, he, how this world is going to treat him and how the environment is going to treat him in his future. Um, I also uh, want his grandparents to accept him as he is. Um, that's really important. And my mom is really excited. I think, I think she's going to be just really like there there for him 100%. And she, uh, she's the director of a library system. And she went into a staff meeting with her full staff. And she said, I just want everybody to know that I'm not available at the end of May because we're having a baby. And they're like, we who? Like, are you <laughs> like, who's having a baby? And she's like, we're having a baby. And that's the way, the way that she's talked about this whole time. Like, <laughs> this is like, she is ready. She is pumped. We are doing this. So I feel really excited about that, but I want, I want no matter what, if he, you know, however he grows for, for all of us to be on board with being there for him. And I also want him to have siblings. And I was just saying to Robert, that was like the last thing on my list, but as I'm in 37 weeks of pregnancy, I'm like, well, who would ever do this again? (laughs) (laughs) What a joke. (laughs) How is that going to happen? Like, so right now at this point, I'm like, yeah, it would be great for him to have siblings, but like, my God, could I pass the buck? Like <laughs> nine months of like waddling around and not being able to jump and like, you know, being whiny, ask me in like four, four or five weeks. And I might be like, it was the most amazing thing. <laughs> and like <laughs> the hormones are flowing through me and I'll be glossy eyed and ready to do it again but right now I'm like yeah right single (laughs) baby forever (laughs) but those those are my general hopes for him (laughs) that's a great list thank you (laughs) (laughs) I worry about math though yeah well that was my that was my next question like what are (laughs) what are you the most afraid of about being a parent maybe it's math (laughs) yeah yeah like am I gonna have to teach this kid math this is a problem I mean there are a lot of questions I've had you know I think a lot about like in parenthood being able as a human being to like find acceptance and understanding like it in the places where I know that it's been tough for me in the past, like just not being a judgmental parent feels really important to me and finding a way to like shed whatever judgmental nature I have, which I think is definitely there. <laughs> like, you know, if it turns out that he likes techno 
and whereas Jinko's, I've got to be all in and ready to just like go for it. And just like, not that there's anything wrong with techno, but it's just, see, I'm judgmental. And I'm already talking about the radio, but it's like, it's just what I worry about is like, you know, my husband's parents, I think, have really struggled with a lot of the decisions that their kids have made. And I mean, like, I think that they grow every year and they become like more acquainted to who their children are as young people. But I think they've really struggled with it. And, you know, I see like Robert's sibling Lane has moved to Portland to kind of find a safe space and a safe community to be themselves. And Robert's sister Stephanie is living in Sweden. (laughs) And like when we told them like what we were going to name him, they were just like, that's a terrible name. And I was like, oh, no, this is like. You know, this is what I feel like I could easily, like, slide into that kind of unwillingness to accept my child for whoever they are. But um, early on, kind of addressing it and being prepared to just, like, fully embrace them and uh, be there. And I think it's important for your kid to stay in your life for you to just kind of be open to who they are fully. That's That's, like... That's my number one concern is, like, not being a selfish human being, which I think, you know, we spend the first half of our lives kind of like, me, 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 (laughs) to reorienting myself to somebody else and their needs and who they want to be in their life distinct from me. Well, thank you so much for talking talking to me about all this and and, um, hoping it all goes so well and, and soon and... Smoothly and safely like me, for everybody. They're just like me. That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk, celebrating the complexity of mothers and motherhood. If you'd like to hear this and previous episodes again, please visit our website at www.wmmt.org. Or you can download Mountain Talk wherever you get your podcasts. Music on this episode comes from the June Apple recording of Jenny Hawker and Kay Justice with a tune called I Have No Mother Now. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer. A good friend of mine, Beth White, once said, Mothering is something you can never do perfect. You can do a really, really good job, or a really, really bad one, but you can never do it perfectly. To all the moms out there, thank you for all you do to raise up our world in the best ways you know how. And to all of you listening, thanks for tuning in to WMMT, your mountain community radio.